Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, Bishop talks about two saints whose feast days we recently celebrated, St. Clair and St. Dominic. Then it's on to what's happening in Nigeria, how the persecution of Christians there remains rampant. But through it all, the church remains vibrant. Then a little closer to home, the political and social crisis in Venezuela. Hear how we can help those being persecuted in both countries. If you have a question for Bishop to answer on a future episode, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our Bishop. Thank you for joining us again. Hello, Kyle. Good to see you. And hello to all the listeners. In a little bit, we're going to be talking about St. Dominic. And I was thinking about, he's the order of preachers. Do you remember your first homily? Yes. Of course, it was as a deacon, uh-huh. and it was at the tomb of St. Peter. Oh. Yeah, a little where's, chapel where's called that? the Clementine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica. Oh, it's in the Basilica. Down below okay. in the crypt, uh-huh. there's a chapel that's closest to his bones, uh-huh. and that's where I preached my first homily. Huh. What was it about? St. Peter. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> it was about why well, I have it, actually. Do you I, really? Handwritten. It's in my lectionary. I've had it all these years. Oh, yeah. So I'd have to look back at it. I I don't remember. I'll have to read it. It might have been about his martyrdom. Okay. Uh, But uh, yeah, I would love to maybe I'll bring that that in. That'd be great. Yes. All right. Well, also, in addition to the Feast of St. Dominic that we'll talk about, which is August 8th, yesterday was the Feast of St. Clair. So I don't know if you have a a prayer about St. Clair. I do. We could do a prayer to St. Clair. By the way, just a couple weeks ago, I had my niece's wedding. And she had Claire as her confirmation name. Okay. And her boyfriend, whom she married, now her husband, had Francis. Oh, so I knew this was a match made in heaven, Francis (laughs) and Claire. Yes. So I mentioned that in the homily at the wedding. Uh But um, yeah, I'd like to do a prayer to St. Claire. You know, we have the Poor Sisters of St. Claire, a cloistered community here in Fort Wayne. So so maybe we can uh, remember them as, as I say this prayer. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Clair, give us your courage and humility to follow in the footsteps of Christ, like St. Francis taught you by his example and his words. May your life of poverty help us to live a simple and sober life as witnesses of the one highest good and in solidarity with those in need. May your love for others help us to live in perfect harmony with each other and to work together for the coming of the kingdom of God. May your heart, the heart of a woman, in love with him who gave himself completely for our love, teach us to love God as well as all people and all creatures. And so like you, we will be transformed into the divine image of the Lord and contemplate the works of his mercy in us, in others, and in history. May he who is always with us grant that we may be always with him. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, I th- we were going to talk about St. Clair a little bit later in the show, but since we're already talking about her, and you mentioned the poor Clares that are here in our diocese, is there any update about them? They're doing well, you know, they're just a beautiful group of sisters and 
as you know, I know we've talked about them before. They're cloistered. They're yep. contemplative. So, so, so people probably don't see them around right, much, and right. so you might not think of them very often. But they're right, and they live at St. Andrews, the old next to the old St. Andrews Church in Fort Wayne, and they pray for mm-hmm. our diocese every day. They pray for me, our priests, all the people. They are a beautiful group of women religious, and um, I'm just so happy that we have them. It's really a powerhouse of prayer, and if people want their prayers, they can always write to them. Okay. Yeah. And about how many are there? I think there's probably eight or nine. I have to check the number. There's one who just began as a postulant, which is someone who just entered and mm-hmm. begins her formation. But uh, yeah, I'll have to check the number. Yeah. Okay. Any thoughts on St. Clair? Oh, St. Clair of Assisi, beautiful follower of St. Francis. I'll be happy to talk about St. Clair. You know, she was born in 1193, so we're talking over 800 years ago. A wealthy family, they were aristocrats, and she renounced her nobility and the wealth to live in poverty and humility. She really followed and adopted the lifestyle of St. Francis. When she turned 18 years old, she left home, secretly went to the Church of the Friars, the, it's called the Portsiuncula, mm-hmm. Our Lady of the Angels. And on the evening of Palm Sunday in the year 1211, she made her vows, consecrated herself to, to Christ as his bride. St. Francis cut off her hair, gave her the habit, very rough penitential habit. Her family were very upset, uh-huh. you know, and... Um, But she really is a beautiful saint, and uh, she was so close to St. Francis. Francis was not only her teacher, but her friend, and this beautiful friendship, a spiritual friendship. She settled with her first companions, the first women who, who followed her into this contemplative life, to the Church of San Damiano. That was the first church that St. Francis had repaired. Mm-hmm. Remember where the crucifix spoke to him and mm-hmm. said, Francis, rebuild my church. So that became their convent, San Damiano. And she lived there for the next 40 years until she died in the year 1253. She lived in poverty. Um, she was the first woman in the history of the church to compose a written rule for a religious community. Huh. And the Pope approved it, and it's basically the charism of St. Francis, but lived in a contemplative life. They did not go out. She had great faith in the Eucharist. We have the famous story when the Saracens, which were a mercenary, kind of like barbarians, coming from the north to attack the city of Assisi and to pillage it, she came out of the convent carrying the Blessed Sacrament. Hmm. And... They were going to attack the convent, and they were going to attack the city of Assisi, but they turned away after she came out with the Blessed Sacrament. So sometimes you'll see Claire holding a ciborium or holding a, a monstrance, and you probably think, well, what is a sister make, doing benediction or whatever? But that was it. She was, that was when, you know, to pray, and the Saracens turned away. Huh. She was canonized real quickly, two years after her death. Wow. Um, and the poor Clares, I mean, for 800 years, they've had this precious role in the church with their prayers, with their works. They support themselves. 
actually St. Clair is popular with young women because a number of the girls that I confirm, that's one of the more popular confirmation names, just as like Francis is a, sure. is a popular confirmation name too. Yeah. Well, I think it points out these different charisms of different religious orders. And we talked about this when we talked about religious life and is very different. The cloistered life of a poor Claire is very different than the life of a Dominican who takes on the charism of, of preaching. The Dominicans, right. also known as the Order of Preachers, they'll put the OP after their name. St. Dominic's feast day was August 8th. And I thought, I don't know if you have thoughts on, on St. Dominic himself, but I thought also we could talk a little bit about preaching and the role that that plays, specifically with our priests, but then also, I guess all of us are called to preach the gospel, whether it be through our lives, through our words, through our example, however we interpret that and however we're, we're able to, to live that out. Yeah. It's interesting how God raised up these saints around the same time. You know, Dominic right. was a contemporary of St. Francis and Claire. I mean, he was born in 1170, uh-huh. but he wasn't Italian. You know that. You know Spanish. Where, Spanish. Very good. You know yeah. a lot about St. Dominic. No, I, not a whole lot. <laughs> well, he had a great interest in scripture. I mean, study of scripture, even before he became a priest, and also a great love for the poor. So so those were very important. And when he was ordained a priest in his home diocese, his bishop saw that this was you know a very bright young priest and also very spiritual. So he took him with him up to Northern Europe and kind of a diplomatic mission that they had on behalf of the king of Castile in Spain. And that's when Dominic saw that there were two big challenges for the church. One, there were a lot of non-evangelized people in Northern Europe, so Mm. who hadn't heard the word of God. Then in the south of France, there was a heretical movement that was growing, a schismatic group called the Albigensians, and they had strayed from the faith. So he saw these two needs basic evangelization, mm-hmm. but also kind of the re-evangelization of these heretics. He and his bishop went to the Pope to ask for advice. And what the Pope asked Dominic to do was to devote himself to preaching to the Albigensians, to this heretical group in southern France, to try to bring them back to the truth of the faith. The Albigensians, by the way, were like the Gnostics. You know, we see Gnosticism, which we talked about in this. Right. In the early church, we talked about this before in one of these shows, but they had that dualistic idea of reality that there was a uh, two equally powerful principles, good and evil, and therefore they despised matter, the material world. And because of that, they denied the incarnation mm-hmm. and they denied the sacraments because the sacraments are matter, bread and wine, water. Right. They denied the resurrection of the body. They refused marriage because they saw it as sinful. I mean, mm. so this was a bad heresy. Now there were. Would some they still good, consider themselves Catholics, or these are non-Catholics? No, they 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 were schismatic. They okay. were yeah, they were separated from the church, and the Pope wanted to bring them back. Okay, so that's why he asked Dominic to preach to them and try mm. to bring them back, and he did. And now there were some good things. They were they. They were critical. The, the Albigensians were critical of the riches of some of the clergy at the time. You know, there was some corruption. Mm-hmm. So, so that uh, was maybe a valid criticism. That was a valid criticism. So they themselves lived poverty and a pretty austere life. So Dominic, he was enthusiastic about this mission of preaching to them, but he also was a good example of by his own poverty and austerity of life. As a matter of fact, he was when he when he founded the friars when he started having some followers 
the sons of St. Dominic, so to speak, these the friars, they were mendicants like the Franciscans. In mm-hmm. other words, they didn't own their own property. Mm-hmm. They went around begging. So, so they were like the Franciscans that way, but they went around teaching, mm-hmm. proclaiming the good news, especially trying to bring the Albigensians back to the church. But then eventually the Dominicans also went to those areas to evangelize, like in Northern Europe where there were they, they hadn't yet heard the good news of the gospel. When Dominic started this group, it, he started in Toulouse in France, and the order of preachers, as you said, came into being, the Dominicans. They used, Dominic decided to use the ancient rule of St. Augustine, and that was the rule for the community, but he adapted it to the time um, okay. so that they could move from place to place, that they would travel. They would be itinerant preachers, mendicants, and then they'd come back to their their homes and chapel for prayer and community life, but then they would go out. Mm-hmm. So it was an interesting way of, of living. You know, they lived their community life in poverty and in study. They were very studious because that's the way, way they could become, you know, good preachers. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, as time went on, I mean, Dominic was very insistent that they have good theological training. He would send them to the universities of the time. These were the first universities, really. He wanted them to be well-prepared. He wanted them to be theologian preachers. And, of course, the Dominicans through the centuries are known as theologians, you know, sure. some of the great. And and I love the motto. St. Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas was a sure. Dominican, exactly. And the motto for the Dominicans is in Latin, contemplata alis tradere, <laughs> okay. which means to hand on the things contemplated. So, in other words, to communicate to others, to hand on the fruit of one's own contemplation. So, this idea of prayer, contemplation, and then handing it on. Dominic eventually died in the year 1221 in Bologna, Italy. But even by the time he died, the order had spread to other countries in Europe. He was canonized not long after in the year 1234. And there was also this other aspect of the Dominicans that's important is their devotion to Mary. And as you know, the disseminating the prayer of the Holy Rosary was one of the important uh, priorities of, of the Dominicans, those who, who followed uh, St. Dominic, who came after him. Mm-hmm. So that's, and, and you mentioned about preaching today. Yeah, preaching, you know, we say preaching is the first task of the priest. You see that in all the church documents. You can't celebrate sacraments, you know, you, faith comes first. Mm-hmm. So you have to preach and hopefully enkindle faith, and then comes the celebration of the sacrament. So for example, baptism, you have to have the profession of faith first. Mm-hmm. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? So the faith needs to be preached. So that's the first task of the priest. Dominicans are famous for this, but every priest is to be a minister of the Word of God. So study is really an important part of the life of the priest, even after ordination. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to keep informed theologically, but then also be able to communicate to people in a way that resonates with their everyday life. You know, to be a good preacher, it's not just giving an academic lecture. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really trying to connect the Word of God to people's lives. And I guess, how important is that? I think sometimes that's something that we get criticism in our Catholic churches that the homily is boring or you know it doesn't entertain me. And I, I kind of look at 
you know, maybe some Protestant churches that that is their entire focus because that's kind of all they have is the the preaching and the music, and that's that's it. That's their whole Sunday service. Whereas we might focus a little bit more on the sacrament and that the Eucharist is the source and summit. So that's that's the the key part for us. And and maybe there's a little less emphasis on the homily, and and therefore maybe either whether it be the training or the personality that, you know, somebody isn't chosen to be a priest based on their ability to give a good homily. Right. Whereas maybe in the Protestant church, somebody is or is not a, a preacher based on their ability to give a good sermon. That's right. And I think, you know, homiletics is an important part of seminary formation. I, we need priests who preach well, mm-hmm. who are good homilists, because, you know, it is important. And there was a time especially before the Second Vatican Council, where perhaps there wasn't enough emphasis on on educating good preachers. People do have a right to hear the Word of God and to have good homilies, you mm. know. And Now, some have more of a natural talent for that than others, but a priest should spend time in preparing homilies, shouldn't be just doing it off the cuff. Mm-hmm. And that is done through prayer, through study, reflection, not just winging it. But I think there is a point here. We see the Word of God and the Eucharist, they're inseparable. I mean, the Liturgy of the Word and Liturgy of the Eucharist are both part of the one Mass. They're inseparable. Right. So therefore, in, in church teaching and saints, you see, speaking of God's Word, like the altar of the Word and the altar of the sacrifice. So one leads to the other. The Word leads to the Eucharist. We become disposed through listening to the Word of God to then partake of his body and blood in the Eucharist. So both are essential. Very good. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can also find past episodes of the show there. Or you can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have a continuation of last week's question talking about the persecution in Nigeria. Also questions about Black Lives Matter different titles for priestly positions, and if Bishop has been to the zoo. Coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. When you're worried about your health, you go see a doctor. Worried about finances? Talk to the helpful folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our savings? Notre Dame FCU. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. And last week, we had a question from Tom Ryan, and we got to the first half of it, but didn't get to the second half. He was asking about the genocide of Christians in Nigeria. Can you please comment? You know, I have we have several priests in our diocese from Nigeria. I was there two years ago to ordain priests and deacons of the Spiritan order. So... You know, we have a kind of a connection, I would say, with the country of Nigeria. It's the largest country in Africa, and the population is about half Muslim and half Christian. Hmm. But the situation there is very bad. At this point, especially in the northern and even some of the central part of the country, there have been a lot of, a lot of violence, even on a daily basis, persecution of Christians, for example, brutal killings by the terrorist group Boko Haram, and also herdsmen, Muslim herdsmen called the Fulani, who have attacked and invaded people's farms, and most of those are Christians. 
So it's really very bad there right now, very dangerous. The president of the country is a Muslim. His name is Buhari, President Buhari. And he's been criticized by the bishops of, uh, of Nigeria because of the insecurity problem in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, people, I mean, you can imagine living in a country with that lack of security. People, you know, afraid, you know, they could be killed. They could have, I mean, there's thousands who have been killed in the past 10 years, especially in the northern part. I mean, tens of thousands of people have been killed and 2 million people displaced. So there's been a lot of suffering, a lot of a lot of people kidnapped, abductions. So people are feeling vulnerable and they're feeling let down by the government. Some of this violence is because of, and it's been going on for a couple decades, predominantly these Christian farmers and the ethnic Fulani herdsmen who are Muslim, basically competing for good land. I mean, some of these militant Islamists also attack other Muslims too, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that. But there's definitely an anti-Christian element that you have victims being kidnapped and forced to convert to Islam or or else they'll get raped or, or they'll be tortured or killed. I don't know if you remember the story of that 16-year-old girl, Leah Sharibu. Leah was taken hostage two years ago when they they kidnapped 100 girls in this one town, Boko Haram did, and the others were freed about a month after they were kidnapped, but she was not because she would not renounce her Christian faith. Huh. So we should pray for her. I mean, I only can't, who can imagine what is like, but she would not renounce Jesus. But basically there's a lot of who, who feel that the government, Nigeria's own government, isn't doing much. Mm-hmm. It's not doing enough when innocent Nigerian people are being killed at the hands primarily of these Islamist terrorists, Boko Haram and these Fulani militants. Of course, Boko Haram targets Christians and some other Muslims. So can we speak of it as genocide? I think so. Mm-hmm. I think when you look at the numbers, I mean, I think in the past 10 years or so, there have been you know, thousands of people killed in violent attacks by terrorist groups and, and uh, Boko Haram and others. Mm-hmm. So a lot of injustice, a lot of corruption in the government and among politicians, that's another problem. So people are feeling very frustrated, helpless. I don't know if we're gonna see a civil war there. I mean, I don't know, I hope not. You know, the church is very vibrant there. When I was there, I mean, they were very joyful in their faith, a lot of vocations to the priesthood and to the religious life. Hmm. But it's a country that I would say is a bit in danger. I don't think there's enough, uh, enough news about this. You have to go to something like BBC. For some reason, our news media outlets don't give a lot of this coverage. Right. Um, not long ago, there was a priest killed. There have been priests killed, murdered, a few priests the past few months. There was one in Enugu State, and I was in the, very close to that when I visited Nigeria. So that was in the southeastern part of the country. So most of the violence is in the north, but you see these acts of also taking place now in, in the south. There was a seminarian, I don't know if you read in the news, who was killed. Actually, there were four seminarians who were kidnapped. One who was released had bad injuries, but but one of them was killed. And his name was Michael 
Nadi, N-N-A-D-I, Michael Nadi, a young seminarian who was was executed. And um, one of the reasons was when he was kidnapped, he, with his, I guess, the prison guard, if I remember the story correctly, not only would he not renounce his faith, Michael also shared the faith with the guard and was, you know, courageously did so, even though he was being held captive. And so he was killed. Hmm. Yeah. It's my understanding that despite all of this persecution and violence going on against Catholics and Christians, there's a large percentage of men who are entering the priesthood from Nigeria. What exactly. do you think? You know, and um, that's why we have these Nigerian priests in our diocese, because yeah. they have so many vocations. And we're blessed, one of our seminarians that I just ordained a deacon, right. Augustine, and I met his mother when I was over in Nigeria, which was great. He's a wonderful young man. And we have some wonderful Nigerian priests serving in our diocese. And there's an article over at Today's Catholic. If you go to todayscatholic.org, and if you just search for Nigeria, it'll pull up that article. It's, it's a great article about the priests that are here, the persecution that's happening over in Nigeria, and our seminarian slash deacon as well. So people can check that at todayscatholic.org. Some people say, well, how can they help the people in Nigeria? You know, well, Catholic Relief Services, you know, they, mm -hmm. our own U.S. Bishops Overseas Relief Agency is very active in Nigeria, as we are in many countries of Africa. But because of the conflict and all that, there's CRS is helping with nutrition for children. You know, we're very big in preventing malaria and treating it, also HIV. Also, agriculture areas, building sustainable uh, systems for agriculture, emergency response, a lot of support for internally displaced people, like I talked about sure. those who've been displaced because of Boko Haram, emergency food, psychological support. Imagine what some of these people have gone through. Mm -hmm. So CRS also helps with that. So again, if one wanted to help in this area sometimes say, well, I really want to help the people in Nigeria. That's the best way is get on CRS website and say, and you can, you can actually earmark, say, I want this for CRS programs in, in Nigeria. Okay. Yeah. All right. Similar things are happening in Venezuela. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, yeah, I mean, this is closer to home. I, I mean, that's another tragedy. The country is in crisis, has been for quite some time, economically, socially, mm -hmm. it's in crisis. Politically, the president is bad news. President Nicolas Maduro, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, they had an election. It was kind of rigged. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really considered legitimate by the by the United States or, or by other nations. Yeah. And the one who really should have been elected was Juan Guaido. You know, he seemed like uh, he would be very good. He had been president of the National Assembly of Venezuela, and he declared himself interim president, but, but it didn't work. The Venezuelan bishops, by the way, also said that Maduro's uh, re-election was invalid, hmm. so the bishops don't even recognize the president. But you know, the country's torn by violence, upheaval, shortages of food, basic necessities. I mean, this used to be a prosperous country because yeah. of the rich oil supply that they have. And now you have hungry people there. 
water shortages. I mean, hyperinflation. I mean, the not, the poverty has increased tremendously. So the toll on the people and it has been devastating. Now 87% of the population is below poverty. Hmm. And many have fled the country. I think there have been more than 3 million Venezuelans have left Venezuela and fled to other countries, so they're refugees. Right. Mostly in Latin America, in the Caribbean. Colombia has the largest number because it's right next to Venezuela, mm -hmm. but they also have refugees in Peru and Ecuador and some other places. So this is really the biggest crisis in Latin America by far. And someone was saying, well, what can we do there? Well, again, CRS is active. Mm -hmm. Catholic Relief Services, by the way, because they're not allowed to actually, I don't think, be in, in the country of Venezuela, a lot of what we do is support Caritas Venezuela. Okay. So CRS, in other words, sends funds to help what we would call Catholic charities uh -huh. that's inside Venezuela. But more directly, CRS is supporting the, the refugees in, that are in other countries, providing shelter, for example, in Colombia, you know, various supplies for these Venezuelan migrants and food and psychological uh, help, you know, in Peru, Ecuador, but primarily Colombia. So the country of Venezuela continues to be in a deep, deep crisis. All right. Any plans for CRS trips for you? Well, my t second term as a member of the board uh, ends in November. Okay. So I just had the trip to El Salvador back in February, was it? January or February. Uh -huh. I can't remember. Um, so that'll probably be the last one unless they... I can't be reelected to a third term. So oh, okay. it's kind of... But I, I, I'll still be a, a supporter of CRS. Sure. As a matter of fact, I'm doing a uh, video conference. I'm, they asked me to give a little talk for CRS about the situation in the Holy Land. Hmm. So I'm going to do that sometime this month talk a little bit about my experience in Gaza and the West Bank, but also about the situation there today and what CRS is doing, especially with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and okay. how that's affecting the Palestinians, et cetera. So I'll still be connected to CRS. Will that be a public thing or is that more internal? It's more internal. Okay. You know what? I don't even know who it's being broadcast to. I'll have to ask them. If it's public, I'll let you know. Great. Can, I, I don't know. All yeah. Right. Well, one of our listeners asked, what are your thoughts on the Black Lives Matter movement? That's a big question. Okay. How much time <laughs> I've been, do we have? I've been waiting I'm, for this I'm one. I'm sorry. This is really, uh, I have a lot to say about this. First of all, the church has a very important role and responsibility in working for racial justice. I've talked on this program about against racism and the church's teaching, you know, this is a fundamental issue of human dignity. So when you get to Black Lives Matter, it becomes a little more complex. And I'll just kind of share with you some thoughts that I have about Black Lives Matter. First of all, it began, the phrase Black Lives Matter began to trend on social media some years ago after the death of Trayvon Martin. In, hmm. And that was, what, eight years ago, I think. And a movement grew, and protests in Missouri, et cetera, two years later when there was a shooting of a, another young black man, Michael Brown, by a police officer. So 
this movement began and, and the slogan Black Lives Matter was kind of a rallying cry. And of course, that's important. I mean, we have we should protest against, uh, you know, racial injustice or the mistreatment of blacks, even by police, etc. You know, we need to act on behalf of racial justice. And so if you talk about Black Lives Matter as this broad social movement for racial justice, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Where the problem comes is there are certain groups that also use that slogan in their title. For example, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, and it has local chapters across the United States. They have a website, blacklivesmatter.com. And... They promote ideologies that are against what we believe. Mm -hmm. You know, they even, they promote LGBT ideology and they oppose the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. So because of this, you have to be careful when they have a radical agenda that has things on family and sexuality that are very much against our faith, we, we can't accept you know, or should not support that kind of an organization. Mm -hmm. But it's a mistake to say that this organization is the head of the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. In other words, so you have to distinguish. This is where it gets a little challenging. You know, there was a radio host on EWTN who was African-American Catholic, Gloria Purvis, and she was making this point that, uh, you know, we shouldn't look at Black Lives Matter through the lens of this one organization. Mm -hmm. And she's a very devout African-American Catholic. So she has no problem saying Black Lives Matter, you right. know, but she wouldn't be a member of that organization. Right. You know, so this is where it's really important to understand what we mean. It is important that, that we recognize the value of every human life. And yes, black lives do matter. We can never devalue the life of anyone, you know? And therefore, when there's police misconduct or if there's, you know, discrimination in housing or other aspects of life that are unjust, you know, we have to be on the side of justice. And, of course, the U.S. Bishops' Committee on Racism, you know, is really calling on Catholics to join efforts to for on behalf of racial justice but that organization black lives matter that ha has an an agenda right that gets into other social issues uh some that are not in harmony with catholic teaching we can join with them in fighting the injustice mm -hmm. of racism but we would not join in uh issues where they reject church teaching on sexuality or on marriage or on abortion because that's another thing. Some of these leaders in Black Lives Matter, these organizations actually are pro-abortion, etc. And even saying that the nuclear family needs to be done away with, which is terrible when you think about it. So I hope that brings a little bit of clarity to people. It seems unfortunate that they've hijacked an otherwise good movement and phrase for another agenda, an ulterior motive yeah. uh, that we, like you said, we, we can't support everything that they stand for, but the, the movement. Right. I, and I've seen 
some people criticize the the phrase "Black Lives Matter," uh, and they'll they'll say all lives matter. Why are we? Why do we have to specify a specific group? We we believe all lives matter. And it seems to me like it's a very Christian thing to recognize those that are being most oppressed, whether it be the unborn, and we emphasize that the unborn life matters, and to right. to recognize that and speak out the truth that these specific groups that have been marginalized or oppressed or victimized, that their lives matter. And that's that's an okay thing to be specific sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. And I think... Um, you're right. Certainly all lives matter. But to say black lives matter is fine because they were the ones who were targeted, especially right. when you think about the origin of it. It was uh, blacks be- who were uh, killed by police officers unjustly. Right. You know, so that's why they started saying black lives matter. You know, they shouldn't be targeted and all that. And I think it's good to get back to first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians where it talks about the body of Christ, and we're all members of the body of Christ, whether mm-hmm. black, white, brown, Asian, Native Americans, Latino, all part of the body of Christ. And that if, as St. Paul says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with right. it. And I, th- I think about that these days. And, you know, when we see those who've suffered because of racial pre- uh, prejudice, discrimination, or any kind of injustice that way. These are, we have to see, these are our brothers and sisters. If they suffer, we must suffer with them. You know, I think that's really important. All right. Michael Kramer from Immaculate Conception Parish in Kendallville asked, what are the differences in the positions of pastor, administrator, and a parochial vicar? Okay. Uh, pastor, of course, is the the leader of the parish, he's the shepherd of the parish, and he has certain canonical rights and obligations as a mm. pastor when he's installed. An administrator is someone who temporarily will lead a parish, but is not yet, but not as a pastor. So he wouldn't have the stability of a pastor. Okay. Usually, for example, if I name a priest to be administrator of a parish, it may be for a time, but I don't intend him to stay on. You know, he might be covering until I have time to get a pastor named there. Okay. You know, that can happen, for example, if if a priest dies, a pastor dies suddenly or something, you know, there might be a temporary administrator put in there. It'd Um, still be a priest, though. Could you have an administrator that's not a priest? Not technically, no. I mean, you could have someone, every parish has to have a pastor who's, uh, who's a priest, and if you have someone who's doing the day-to-day operations, in and, and you only have, let's say, a priest who comes maybe periodically because mm-hmm. you know there's a shortage of priests somewhere. This isn't in our diocese, but you could have a deacon or a religious or a layperson who's kind of running the parish day to day. But even a parish like that, they, they don't usually give the title administrator because they pretty much a church res, uh, in canon law restricts that title to a priest. Okay. Yeah. And a parochial vicar is an associate. So he's an assistant to the pastor. Has to be a priest. Okay. Yeah. All right. Another listener wrote, I have been listening to Father John Ricardo's podcast called You Were Born for This. It focuses on ways to reimagine parishes through things like having multiple priests serve multiple parishes to better serve their charisms. What are your thoughts on implementing something like this in our diocese? You know, um, 
multiple priests serving multiple parishes to better serve their charisms. No, I don't have any plans on this for our diocese. You know, we've been blessed with vocations, and I think we're going to be okay. I don't want to be too secure in that. We have to continue to work and pray for vocations. But my sense is that usually that model where you have priests serving multiple parishes, that's usually in areas where there's a priest shortage. Um, If I'm understanding this question correctly, I think maybe in some they're trying this experiment where – you might have, you know, one priest who specializes in one thing and another, another, and this group of priests is is serving a group of parishes because, it, but it sounds a little complicated to me. Right. I like the priests being there at the parish so they're accessible to the people, so that they're available to the people. So, yeah, I have no plans on implementing something like that in our diocese. All right. Someone asked, why did Jesus pick Judas as a disciple? Did he know Judas would betray him? This will show, the answer shows the fallibility of the bishop. I have no idea. You know, it's, it's really a mystery. You know, why uh-huh. did Jesus pick? I think it's part of God's plan. I mean, for our redemption. Did Jesus know that Judas would betray him? Well, yes, because in his divine nature, Jesus knew everything. Mm-hmm. So I would answer yes to that part of the question. So if he knew that he was going to betray him, then why would he choose somebody that would betray him? I think he was faithful to his father's plan for our redemption. Uh-huh. We're in a mysterious area talking about these things. Yeah, yeah. And when you talk about the knowledge of Jesus, you know, there's also, we talk about his knowledge in his divine nature. You know, he grew in wisdom and knowledge in his human nature. But as the son of God, he was omniscient. That gets into the mystery of what kind of knowledge we're talking about. Obviously, in his human nature, we speak of how Jesus grew in knowledge, but he had this interior knowledge in his divine nature. And that's another subject of theological, uh, would, would take a lot more time to, to discuss that issue. Okay. Yeah. And finally, a listener asked, have you been to the Fort Wayne Children's Zoo? Yes, yeah. some years ago. It's been a while, okay. and it's been when people have visited who have kids. Okay. Yeah, like I had uh, like some friends and that from, from Pennsylvania, from back home who've come. That's kind of a nice place to take them, and they always enjoy it. Uh-huh. Yeah, they, they really do. But I haven't been there for a few years. I don't know if they have some new animals maybe. Uh, they've done some reconstruction and, and things like that, I know. Okay. Do you take your kids there? Uh, yeah, we have. Usually we'll do like a, we'll get a season pass like every other year. Oh, okay. So we'll do that or Science Central is the, the kind of a museum for kids and science. Uh, we'll kind of do that on the off years and things. Well, you know, I don't go to zoos a lot because I'm allergic to animals with that have fur. Oh, that's right. Remember? Yeah. So I just go and see the reptiles. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not allergic to them. So is that not something that you did growing up very much then, going to zoos? No, no. Well, actually, I, seriously, I, they don't bother me now. Uh-huh. But growing up, yeah. The asthma. I mean, I was very sensitive. Even being oh, yeah. outside and Well, I don't know. But I mean, and... I would have asthma attacks when I'd be with a dog or cat inside. I I don't know about outside, but I probably wouldn't have gotten close to them. It might have bothered me then. But no, I've kind of grown out that. It's not too bad now. I mean, I could still be affected more by a cat. Dogs Uh 
don't seem to affect me now. So I guess I've grown out of it a good bit. Did you have an inhaler? No, back then I would have to get shots, a lot of oh, shots. Wow. I don't, I think they didn't have the same, the, the same level of um, like good medication sure. that you have today for asthma. But I remember, uh, you mentioned first grade. Uh-huh. It was when I was in first grade, I had to go for those tests, which they do all those needles in your ba- all through your over your back and in oh, your well. arms to find out what you're allergic to. That's a traumatic thing that I remember as a first grader. Yeah. And then I had to get shots like every week for years. Really? Yeah. Every week for years yeah. for asthma? Yeah. I had to be rushed to the hospital a few times, not being able to breathe. So I always have you know, special compassion for those who struggle with respiratory illnesses or asthma. Sure. But thanks be to God, I I, my, I don't have too many problems. I do get pneumonia sometimes when I get bronchitis. I think that's kind of there sometimes. Wow. So that's why I'm a little trying to be careful with COVID. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, if anybody has any questions for Bishop, you can send us a text at the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And before we go, can we have your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.